My name is Ismail Mohammed and I live in Seattle area for more than 20 years. Seattle has been home to me and my family, kids and my parents since uh, 1980s sometime. I am a small business owner running Subway sandwiches, franchises and gas stations. Hi, my name is Rituja and this is Roti, Kapra or Makan where we talk about the basics of life, food, clothes, and the idea of home. Ismail is an entrepreneur, a community leader, a husband, a son, a father, a grandfather. But being a student is an identity that he carries with honor and pride. I am fortunate that uh, after I moved here to Seattle, I actually went back to school because I never had this opportunity back home in Pakistan. After I was a little bit settled down in my work and businesses, I did my associate from Edmonds Community College. After completing my associates from Edmonds Community College, I took a transfer to UW and I did my bachelor's in 2008 from the University of Washington in liberal arts. And in 2010, I actually did my master's in public administration from the University of Washington's Evans Schools. So what made you go back to school again? Um, because that time you probably had like kids and businesses to run, so you know, it, it's not easy. It wasn't easy, definitely. It wasn't easy. I would say that in our culture, in our, even part of my faith mm-hmm. dictates me or tells me that uh, go to China even if you have to go to earn education mm. uh, and and it's part of our our faith again I would say that to get educated and then to help with that education it's it's like uh, it's the foundation of our growth mm. and my wife is I would say I give her the whole credit for encouraging me and supporting me to go back to school. She always encouraged me. So I was admitted, there is a story that I was in Edmonds Community College and my son was also a student there. Mm-hmm. And one day I was overwhelmed with work, you know, with assignments and I was, I was late and submitting papers and all that. And I called my wife and I said, you know what, I, it's, I cannot do this. So what she did was she gave that phone to my son and said that your dad wants to quit. <laughs> and my son said, if you're going to quit, what kind of example you're going to leave for your children? And that day I actually took off from work, like took two days off, caught up on my work. And I really enjoyed being in a class, being, being in an environment of learning. Mm. And I, I survived. I, I was not a full-time student, but 
I did my bachelor's probably in six years instead of four, right. and I did my master's in two years. Ismail is a lifelong learner. Even today, he likes to keep up with the news. He likes to be fully informed and will read up on both sides of the issue. Ismail thinks his desire to learn and to be informed is most likely a genetic inheritance given that his 86-year-old father still goes to the library six times a week. Our conversation then turned to what brought Ismail to America. A couple of reasons, I think. First is that my half of my family, like my parents and my brothers, were already here mm-hmm. in this country. And my mother had a cancer, ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. And my wife was the only daughter-in-law. We don't have any sister. Mm-hmm. So as we don't have any sisters, so to take care of my mother, so my wife was the only daughter-in-law mm-hmm. as a family that she could help. So that was one reason. And the second reason was that the political conditions in Pakistan, Mm -hmm. the education, again, it goes back to uh, giving the education to your children. There were no opportunities there for for providing a good education in, in that country, in Pakistan. So those were two basic reasons I would say. Mm -hmm. Financially I was doing well over there means but of course it's better here. Mm -hmm. Ismail had traveled all over the world before he decided to settle down in the US. He recalls the difference that he felt as a tourist and as someone who wanted to settle down and have a family in America. So do you think like having your family here already was a huge boon to you when you came down to settle in the States? Yes, I would say definitely. There is no doubt about it. You can imagine that when you have somebody at the airport to receive you, take pick up your bag and put it in the car and <laughs> drive you home and have the food ready. Yeah. Of yeah. course that yeah. that support you can never replace with anything. Right. Now, starting with that, you know, with settling down, getting into an apartment or mm. getting into work, and all that. Yeah. Means I would say that I would not have been in this position that quickly if my brothers or family who were here already mm. would not have been a support to me. Ismail has immense respect for his family who helped him settle in the United States. Another important institution that he credits to getting him settled into his new home is the Jamaat Khana. I am a Muslim by faith, by practice. And uh, in in Muslim, there are many sects, just Mm -hmm. like any other religion. And I am a follower of His Highness the Aga Khan, which is a smiley community. And smiley community has a practice of going to pray two times a day, every day. And that practice of going to Jamaat Khana, which is called, the, that house of prayer is called Jamaat Khana. So that going to, to Jamaat Khana for prayers in back home, that's, that's being part of a 
communal prayer, it binds you with that community. It makes you part of that community. Now, when you go to any other place besides your own native home, first thing actually we do is look for a Jamaat Khana mm. in that yes. city or in that country, in that city and where we are. The first thing you do is do that. And then actually this community is, our community is so so well knit, it's mm-hmm. so organized. You got people who can help you in economic situations, mm-hmm. social situations, seniors, situ- seniors, you know, taking care of. So there is such a good network of support. Mm-hmm. And no matter where you go, where, which country you go, which city you go, you find these institutions ready to hold your hand besides your family. Ismail's family and his community helped him settle in Seattle. As is the credence of the people of his community, Ismail soon stepped in to help others. For the past 20 years, he has served in some capacity as a volunteer or a leader in the Jamaat Khana. about the Jamaat Khana and you know also about your religion are there any specific clothing that you wear when you go to the Jamaat Khana or otherwise no our Jamaat Khanas do not require any particular clothing it's suggested of modesty and the respect mm-hmm. for the facility you know mm-hmm. the house of prayer mm-hmm. and in that I think people have wider choice you know mm-hmm. My wife would wear a sari, or sari is a very Indian dress, mm. but she she would wear that on a big occasion, shalwar kurta on some days, or normal western dress mm-hmm. some, some days. So there is no such requirement, I would mm. say. How about for men? Like, do you dress in, in you know, salwar kameez or? No. 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 I, I go like, normal but mm-hmm. on on certain days I put on a suit maybe mm. you know but not shalwar kameez mm. yes on uh, Eid day mm-hmm. or some other occasions like that that day I might you know put on a shalwar kameez yeah. when there is a Eid day like two or three times in a year right but but not on a regular basis or no mm-hmm. Have you ever felt like you stood out when you were wearing your traditional clothes and when you were in public? Honestly, I don't wear it in public. Mm. It's only when I go to the center. But I do, when I go to a congregational prayer in on an Eid day, like there is a namaz on in convention center on an Eid day. And if I'm wearing my traditional cloth, clothing, I don't feel out of place because there are so many other traditions or cultural dress. People in in their own cultural dresses are there that I actually feel a part of a fabric of so many different cultures from around the world mm. coming in together to say a namaz or prayer. A mm. in a, a they, it binds them that. Eid is an occasion, a Muslim occasion, occasion for so many cultures that come together that day with their own traditional dresses. Mm. Like you, you see people from Ethiopia, 
you see people from China or mm. or so many different types of so many different backgrounds I would say mm. or cultural so do your grandkids like to wear uh, Pakistani traditional clothes yes yeah, yeah. they like it Indian Pakistani, Indian, Pakistani like Pakistani, yeah. yeah they like to wear occasionally yes. occasionally you know so they do and they they love it uh-huh. and my granddaughter said that whenever she wears an outfit she says oh I got my dupatta I got my dupatta <laughs> she loves it we discuss clothes a little bit more especially wearing traditional clothes in public. Like many, I associate clothes with the part of the world people come from and also with their religion. So you said something and I want to correct that. Mm -hmm. Like you said, when you're wearing something, you're wearing your religion. You're not wearing your religion, you're wearing your culture. Because uh, sari, as an example, is part of Indian culture. My wife is a Muslim, but she still wears it. That doesn't change her to Hindu. Mm-hmm. That still she keeps her faith, but traditionally or culturally, she's wearing that. Now, if a person is walking on the street with a dressing like an Indian or a, or a Pakistani outfit, we are, or the person who is looking at it, exactly what you said, when we looked at it, we were fearful for him. Mm -hmm. So it is a matter of how you look at it. Mm -hmm. That person can may not be a Muslim Mm -hmm. and still get attacked. You know, you heard that a lot of Sikhs were attacked uh, being in a turban and Mm -hmm. a head. So I think it's a matter of lack of understanding Mm -hmm. on the people who are looking at it. From clothes, our conversation moved on to food. I think in our Indian or Pakistani culture, food is uh, a very important part of our life, I think. If you look at it, like, I don't drink, I don't smoke, Mm -hmm. but I would eat good (laughs) Indian-Pakistani food. Well, Pakistani food. Nothing against Indian food, but my taste buds are built for, for Pakistani food. I grew up with Pakistani food, like an example is a Nihari, you know. Mm-hmm. You may not find it in Indian culture that much, but in Pakistani culture you will find that Nihari. Mm-hmm. And I thoroughly enjoy eating that. Mm-hmm. Uh, biryani, my wife makes such a good <laughs> biryani that... Uh, I can not resist it. Mm-hmm. Now, ask me that, has this continued into your kids? So yes. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if, if my wife would make biryani, everybody. and my son and my daughter and everybody, and if they are even on a diet, you know, <laughs> or they don't eat the whole week, but if it's yeah. a biryani, yeah. there is all no right? all best yeah. Of yeah. <laughs> What is the food that, you know, when, when you were growing up in Pakistan, that you had that, that you've never found the taste again? I cannot recall anything that I cannot find it here as far as food. Now, there are other things that you can bring up and say, that's what I miss mm-hmm. in food ranges. Certain fruits that 
you don't find it here. You absolutely, even if you find it, you don't have that taste. Mm -hmm. And one of them is the mango, mm -hmm. mangoes, you know, like the, the mangoes from India mm -hmm. is the Afusam mm -hmm. and the mangoes from Pakistan is the Anwaritol, Sindri, Chosa, like these are the varieties of it. Right. And over here you only get a, a mango, which is where there are two or three kinds, but they come from Mexico. Yeah. And they are not even close to what right. you can find. There are other certain fruits that very tropical fruits. Mm. They're only available in subcontinent, mm -hmm. like badam, like mm bear like like jam i mean mm -hmm. jam guava you can find here but not not that kind and falsa What's oh my that is oh outstanding oh really that's they come in a very small season you know and falsa ah. you eat spices to it and salt to it and i i have my mouth is watering <laughs> i didn't I, even i didn't had that fruit for last 20 years, I would say, wow. but still today I'm I'm saying this and yeah. I have to, I <laughs> have to, buds are yeah. <laughs> oh my, yeah, they look like uh, blueberries, oh, exactly. Okay. Mm. Do you like to cook? Yes, I like to cook. Do you cook? Uh, yes, so when I was growing up, no, mm -hmm. when, when I come came to this culture, this means Western culture, then there there become there was a a need for me to cook, I would say. Because mm -hmm. when my wife would be out of town or she's gone to see her parents, then I would be here mm -hmm. and I would I was the oldest in the family or oldest in the home. Yeah. So uh, I took a step beyond the cooking an egg. So what I did was, uh, if you are familiar with Sean Masala, mm -hmm. so these are spices boxes that comes in, everything combined in there, and there are instructions on the back of it. Mm -hmm. So my first story was that for cooking was, when I started cooking, I looked at the instructions, and it says, uh, leave it in the spices to marinate for half an hour. Okay, nobody is telling me marinate, leave it room temperature or fridge or or what do where do I leave it? It's gonna go bad or it's gonna be good or what? I, what do I do? So I I actually emailed to Sean P. Masala. Oh. I said you guys don't specify this, and you are saying that use a uh, use raw papaya in certain kind of yes. food too so that it it kind of uh, cooked easily you know mm -hmm. I said but I'm in here in the United States I don't get raw papayas <laughs> he said okay there's a meat tenderizer you can buy uh. they suggested <laughs> so good okay so after that first it was a shan masala so it had a Pakistani food taste to it mm -hmm. and then Besides, I don't have to find anything else mm -hmm. in spices because everything is ready in that pack. So I would take my chicken. I did a chicken. My first dish, I would say, was a chicken ginger. 
Then I made Bihari kebab oh, and wow. I made kebabs and now means I I, I made Nihari also. Mm-hmm. So I tried quite a few things and yeah. I can cook now. Nice. I can I can get by. <laughs> and people will eat your people food. People will eat my <laughs> food or at least I will eat my food. My kids will eat my food. <laughs> Is there any recipe that you would like to pass on as heritage to your kids? Oh, I don't have a recipe. I would pass on the Shan Masala box to them. <laughs> I can just imagine Ismail's home with his family around him, the aroma of delicious biryani wafting through the kitchen, which then led Ismail and me to talk about his home. I think for a home, we can take Maslow's theory of hierarchy and we can say that if my basics are met anywhere, that can be my home. But I don't think that I would settle for my being home as where I find food or shelter or or that. But I would say that my home is where I can actually self-actualize, self-realize. I can be at a place where I can be helpful to others and I find peace within myself too. For me, that would be my home, you know. And for being that being my home, so I can say that Seattle is my home now because I find peace in here. I have children, grandchildren, work, a community, my faith, and being able to practice my faith in comfort. And that is, I think, a critical part to me. So I find it here. So it means that this is my home. Ours is a very simple home, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kept it simple in a mm-hmm. way that living there for almost 10 years now, this mm-hmm. place. Is, is that like your dream home? Uh, I don't know what is a dream home, but a home which is where you find peace mm-hmm. and where you find comfort. We have four bedrooms in our home and we always say that we have 100% occupancy because sometimes my brother would be in town, mm-hmm. my niece will be here, is here for two, three months, my kids come and go, my grandkids come and go. So we always have a house full. So it's a good place that we have a play area for kids and so yeah. you have a full house because you have a big heart oh well <laughs> it's uh, we say that the guest comes to your home when God is happy with you mm-hmm. so they are the blessings of God <laughs> that was Ismail Muhammad a community leader always ready to help with a smile Roti, Kapra, or Makan, we plan to bring to you regular book reviews. This week, we review Our Feet Walk the Sky, a literary nonfiction. This comprehensive work is a pioneering effort to collect essays, poems, personal stories written by and about South Asian women and South Asian immigrants. For many who struggle and are in conflict with their South Asian culture, and American ideals, this book offers a solace. It makes you feel a little less alone. 
Although it is commonplace these days to speak of South Asian American literature, and academics and book lovers alike recognize major names like Jhumpa Lahiri, Chitra Divakaruni, and Amitav Ghosh as part of this group of writers, this body of writing was relatively unknown two decades ago. A landmark anthology, Our Feet Walk the Sky, was published by a boutique press, Aunt Lute, in 1993. The anthology was also collaboratively edited, a relatively unique phenomenon, by a group of women who identified as the Women of South Asian Descent Collective. It seems this project emerged in a class at UC Berkeley taught by Professor Jane Singh on South Asians in America in 1991. I still recall the excitement I felt when I read this book when it came out. A newly minted PhD, I had begun to look for stories about South Asian immigrants to the United States and their history, a subject that would eventually evolve into a career focus. Here was a book in which women shared poems, narratives, essays, critical, critical analyses from a breathtaking variety of South Asian heritages. Their works signals different linguistic, religious, and class backgrounds. Some were first-generation immigrants and others were children and grandchildren of immigrants. Some had come directly from South Asia and others had traversed the globe as part of earlier South Asian migrations to the Caribbean or Fiji. These women did not speak as one voice, and their powerful voices exploded on the page. They challenged patriarchal authority, defied heteronormativity, expressed sorrow, loss, nostalgia, anger, joy, and love. Some of these writers I had heard of, Chitra Devakuruni had a poem or two, and Roshni Rustamji Khan's a story. Many were new voices, and in the years since, they have gone on to publish other works. People like Meenal Hajratwala or Zainab Ali, who later published a novel under the name Samina Ali, or Jinu Kamani, who later who publishes in this book as Gaurangi Kamani. There are also critical essays by scholars like Samita Das Das Puptan and Dharpat Grewal, who are pioneering scholars in the field. This book is divided into eight sections, evocatively titled as follows. Lighting the fire beneath our homes, surrounded by the walls of our community, the laborers of this war, the fear that comes from their eyes, she will not be shamed, fissures of the past, the strength that mends her soul, and my feet found home. The titles and sequence of these sections tell the stories of women's struggle against family, community, nation, and also speaks to their resilience and courage. I leave you with an excerpt, a poem here, by Darini Rasaya, a Sri Lankan-American poet, who also happens to be one of the editors of this editorial collective. The poem is called A Photograph. I have a memory of Sri Lanka. I am four, watching Thambi pass from aunt to cousin to grandmother's arms. I wait on the steps restlessly and turn to Bobby Mama, who shows me the big watch he wears on his wrist. His smile comforts me among the unfamiliar faces gathered to greet us on our first trip back. My only memory of Sri Lanka, of my uncle, the last of the family to leave a country that forced him into a life as a refugee. From England, Canada to California, with each move came a new home for my family, a new life more removed than the last. While he in Madras helped the Tamils living in the camps who could not return to the country that was no longer their home. I asked my mother for a story of my uncle, a link to my past, but she hesitates to reveal his life and risk his protection for the luxury of a poem. 
I look at the photograph she gives me instead of a young girl wearing a watch that catches the glare of the camera's flash. Her uncle is sitting behind her on the steps of her grandmother's house beneath the reflection of the trees in the windows. The distance of this past before Jaffna was destroyed makes me question if this memory was ever my own. Dr. Nalini Iyer is a professor of English at Seattle University. She reviewed Our Feet Walk the Sky, Women of South Asian Diaspora. Next time on Roti Kapra or Makan, we talk to Paramita Ghosh, a motorbike riding math nerd, a mountain lover, someone who has recently made Seattle her home. I hope you'll join us. Roti Kapda Armakan is produced by Studio Disha. Music by Mansoor Ahmad of Resonate Productions. Our podcast is brand new. Subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. Like us on Facebook. If you have any story ideas or comments for Roti Kapda Armakan, email us at rkmpodcast at gmail.com. I am Rituja and thanks for listening to Roti Kapra or Makai.